Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I'm here with Elias Randall. Um, we've had some exciting stuff happen. Elias was deemed boring in a video by a subscriber, but more recently, we had another subscriber decide that Elias likes to wear a lot of plaid. So we've actually decided to coin him the Plaid Planner. Welcome That's back, right. Plaid Planner. That's right. And I like that nickname. It has a nice ring to it. It's like the Caped Crusader. So it's like it says it's just as cool as Batman's nickname to me, I think. So you're you're now the Batman of financial planning. I was deemed the Obi-Wan Kenobi and now you're the Batman of financial planning. That's right. All That's right. right. Well, Plaid Planner, tell me a little bit about um, what we're going to talk about today. I know we'd assigned you um, a couple homework assignments of watching some movies that most people have seen. And you mentioned to me when you were watching Wall Street 2 that there was a scene in Wall Street 2 you kind of thought was similar to some of the stuff that's happening today. Why don't you share with us what that is? Yeah, so it's Shia LaBeouf, right? He's the young guy, and he walks into Gordon Greco's apartment, and there's a poster on the wall, and it's about tulip mania, which the show today is about tulip mania, uh, a time where a tulip could buy you a house, and we'll get into that later. But uh, the whole point of that scene and the poster that Gordon has was it's about, it's a classic asset bubble in finance history. And since we're talking about Wall Street 2, Gordon Gecko, I do want to bring up that <laughs> you're starting to look like Gordon Gre Gordon Gecko. Um, and we have had a listener comment that Roger's hair is getting too long and he needs a haircut. I happen to agree with that. So Anyone who else that agrees he needs a haircut, just comment on the video and let us know. All right, so my actual sister-in-law brought this up to me, a couple of people that I know. One's like, what's up with your brother-in-law's hair? It's like super long. What's going on? Full disclosure, I've had a short haircut since I was basically 20. And when coronavirus happened, I just decided, you know, whatever, this is my corona cut. So I've had it trimmed a few times. Um, and, and the funny thing is, my where my sister-in-law works, there's another guy in the office who's like, no. I actually really like his hair. So what we're gonna have Molly do is we're gonna have her post a poll as to keep this hair long, keep it short. She'll put a side-by-side -side picture up there. And then I've decided the only way I'm gonna cut my hair is once I get the vaccine. Cause that'll mean like my that Corona could, year's over. It's over. So we'll have a poll. We'll let the listeners decide as they've decided that you're the plaid planner. And I'm boring. And you're boring. It's okay. We're going to have a great show. So I think it's really cool that you brought up the tulip mania because it's symptomatic, I believe, of things that are happening today. I have got more phone calls in the last 30 days from primarily friends, so younger younger type investors. Um, some of them are clients asking about certain asset classes that have just went up at a very, very fast pace. And I always believe it's really good to look back at history and say, hey, what can we learn from history? Not that it's necessarily gonna repeat itself, but what can we learn from history? And you mentioned tulip mania, and a lot of people don't know what this is. I personally didn't know what this was until I saw Wall Street 2. I'm like, oh, what's tulip mania? Like what's symptomatic about this poster? Um, so we went back and we did the research on it. And tulip mania, just to give a background, started in the 1600s um, as the Dutch were becoming independent from Spain. The Dutch merchants started growing rich through the Dutch East India Company. We've all heard of that through school. Most of us had some kind of a, a history lesson. Um, but Dutch East India Asia Company also established on the, the um, Amsterdam Stock Exchange. And during this time, 
tulip bulbs were starting to transition from like, you know, I have these in my yard to more of a actual collector's item and ultimately into full blown futures type trading. Right. Cause it started. So there was like a lot of new wealth in Holland at the time. And it just, it really started to take off because the wealthy people, they were just, it was like a exotic collector's item. It's like, to me, it'd be like the equivalent of a really, um, like a really sought after piece of art today, which it, to me is a lot different than just a flower. But at that time in Holland, it was like, that was the thing to show your wealth and how, um, you know, and just how cool people thought it was. Right. And, and it started transitioning for a way for people to kind of, in today's terms, get rich quick, right? Oh, absolutely. A massive amount of absolutely. wealth. And, and at that time, tulips were beginning to be seen as a store of value. And we've heard this term with other things in society today. In fact, there was a there was one tulip, I think it was called the Semper Augustus. Then it had these weird, weird stripings in it. And it started just going for a massive, massive premium. And back in the day, everything was traded in guilders, which was the monetary you know, currency of that time. And the Semper Augustus had these little stripes in it. So it was clearly seen as this really exotic variant. Yeah. In fact- And it, it looks cool. It is a cool looking flower. Right, it, it's a great looking flower. But they started valuing it at 5,000 guilders for, for one of these. And what's really crazy about it as they learn later in history, that that one tulip, the Semper Augustus, it was actually caused by a virus, which gave it the striping, reduced the overall you know, long-term life expectancy of this tulip. So it was actually worse for the flower, but it was great for the marketability of it. Um, right. I mean, it's just crazy to think how much these things, so 5,000 guilders to level set would be equivalent to about 480,000 US dollars today. Yeah, and back then in the book we read, so there were skilled tradesmen working all year round. If you're a skilled tradesman or a farmer back then in Holland, your annual salary would roughly be like 300 guilders for the year. And people were willing to spend 5,000 on one tulip. I mean, that's just incredible. Right, it's, the numbers sound small, but what's really funny is we're seeing kind of the same thing today where we have asset classes that have multiplied by a thousand percent in very, very short periods of time. But the inventor of the Scepter Augustus saw an opportunity because he was a crafty businessman, right? Yep. And he said, hey, how about I just try to monopolize the tulip industry? And he started creating contracts that buyers would sign stating they could only sell this species with his permission. Yeah, so like essentially it was like franchising and monopolizing the flower, right? Yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. Um, but he knew that if he was able to control the prices, that ultimately they would be more valuable than if he wasn't able to control the prices of these particular tulips. Right. And this is ultimately how futures contracts came to happen in the tulip business. And as, as they keep they keep growing as collector items. Um, all right, I'm going to go back because we have too much on this. We stopped. Okay, so Elias, tell me a little bit because I know you did a lot of research on this, but tell me the environment that the tulips actually were trading in because it wasn't like, it wasn't really that transparent of a deal. And I know there were a lot of different... Um, 
nuances and customary things that happened at these trading i think they're called taverns yeah yeah it was taverns and i thought this was one of the more fascinating aspects of the book we read was which and some of it started to form like it started to form some of the basic things that are still in our business today but and everyone trading these futures contracts it was really more of a of a hobby so it'd be and it was the it was wealthier people that could afford tulips in the first place in Holland, but they would go to the taverns for happy hour. And here's what I really got a kick out of: so there'd be a buyer and a seller, there would be a broker who would get a commission, and they would have a recording secretary because so these transactions would get filed like in the town with the town notary of the time. And probably the best part was so the commission that the broker would make the custom at the time was. He would then buy rounds of alcohol and tobacco for everyone in the for everyone in the tavern. So I'm reading this and it leads to, you know, it leads to an asset bubble and people lost a lot of money, but it sounds like a lot of fun. I was thinking, this sounds awesome. You're going to the bar to trade some futures contracts. It's a hobby. Everyone's having fun doing it. The guy making commission, he's buying everyone drinks and buying them cigars and um I don't know I thought that you know it's probably not a smart thing to do, but it sounded like a fun thing, fun to, thing do. to do. So nineteen or 1636 to 1637 is kind of when the absolute peak of the tulip mania actually happened. So on December 31st, 1636, you could buy, you know, a tulip for 125 guilders. Fast forward 30 days. The same bulb is 1,250 guilders or an 11% increase. And this is when critics started to say, hey, look, something isn't right. There may be disconnect, but very few people heeded the warning. And and the reason is they thought this was their way to strike it rich. I mean, there... It was unbelievable just the cost to entry. So at that time, if you wanted to become a tulip trader, they recommended that you started with $100,000 worth of guilders, which equals 335 years of wages for the average working person in 1636 or $9.4 million today. That's just to become a trader. That's their skin in the game to get started. <laughs> right. And they, But they're still basing that they're going to sell these tulips or trade them for something more. So on February 5th, 1637 was kind of considered the day that the crash of the tulip prices happened. And it was held at the Guild Hall in Akmar. And there were, there was an auction and there were a hundred bulbs and these hundred bulbs sold for 90,000 guilders or in today's dollars, $17 million. So, so picture this, you have a hundred bulbs of tulips that sell for $17 million. That's hard to wrap your mind around. And at this time it was seen as, hey, these are valuable. This is a store of value. And very few people could you convince them at that time that these weren't valuable. But there were a few critics out there saying this there wasn't. So at this auction, 31-year-old Andreas de Bauscher offered one pound of Spitzer bulb, which is a super exotic bulb that he bought at this auction. He offered them for sale. And 29-year-old UC Van Koyek bought, a, bought them for 1,000 guilders. Okay. Um, he paid a small percentage up front as he bought these tulips, which was customary. I think it was called the wine money. And he yep. gave him the appropriate wine money. And then he signed a promissory note to take delivery of these tulips. Well, by the next morning, 
Van Koyak started to get what a lot of us get when we make a big purchase, right? Because a thousand guilders, I don't remember the 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 currency change, but it's a lot. Um, he started getting buyer's remorse. And he kind of decided time. he wasn't going to do this. And nobody really knows what changed his mind, but it's actually believed that friends and family had actually been at a tulip auction two days earlier on February 3rd, okay? And that was held in Harlem, which was a part of the Dutch, air, Dutch area. And the auctioneer started out for the batch of tulips at 1,250 guilders. And crickets. Doesn't hear a chirp in the crowd, not one word. So he And this was two days before two days prior. He paid a thousand guilders for the bulbs we're talking about. Correct. Yep. Two okay. days prior to this. Crickets. So the auctioneer, what did the, what's an auctioneer do? Price it's, starts coming yeah. down. So he yep. starts lowering the price a hundred guilders at a time until the first light gets to zero and there's no takers. Nobody. Ouch. Nobody bought them. He goes through the remaining part of the auction. Every single lot of bulbs were not purchased. So it's believed that this information traveled back to Van Koyak, who then changed his mind after the original settlement. Um, but in less than six weeks after this February 5th auction, tulip prices nosedived 90%. They went from on average $76,000 per bulb to $1. Yeah, that's in today's dollars. Today's dollars. Yeah, yeah. That's in today's right. dollars. $76,000 to $1. Jeez. This is really the day that the bubble really burst. But to think about that massive of a drop, it, it's unimaginable. But it does happen. And, and think, what caused it? Well, it went up 1,100% in 30 days. So I think one of the, the takeaways that we can talk about with people listening to our show is we don't want to predict what assets are in bubbles, but clearly we are seeing frothiness where certain asset classes have run up very, very quickly in price. And anytime something goes up a thousand percent, there's a reason to potentially be skeptical of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. So what are some of those reasons? One of the, one of my takeaways from the book about tulip mania was there was a sentiment in Holland at that time that the value of tulips would go up forever. That was just kind of the general consensus was this is something that's never going to lose value. Um, so what are like what are some of the examples of what you just mentioned? Well, I actually think maybe we just look at kind of what caused caused the the bubble to burst per se on tulip mania. So think about as the the tulips rose to the point where no longer did the individual actually see it as useful to them, right? Because what are tulips really for? To grow to in your plant, garden. Yeah, plant in your garden. Plant in your garden, make them look nice. At that time, they believed they were a store value. But what happened is it became purely speculative and it became a traded commodity is really what it became. So all the value was just being driven through traders and not the common person. So the demand was kept up by all of the people that were bidding or buying the flowers. Right. Or the, or the so, bulbs. And and as prices, as all of a sudden the demand or buyers and bidders evaporated, the prices come down astronomically because the normal person who's using them for something in their life where it's actually, I need to go have 27 tulip bulbs because I want to plant these. As that evaporated, the price evaporated with it. Yeah. So 
all that was left in the market when this bubble burst was the price speculators, people trading the contracts and your consumer or end user, someone who just wanted to plant a tulip, they're not even interested in buying it anymore. Right. So, the, so essentially there's, there's actually, so there's no buyer for the product. Because really there was, it was all artificial created demand for this really through the buying and selling of these contracts, right? right. Because truth be told, what was the value of a tulip? To make your garden look nice. It's it's nice to look at. It's They're beautiful. Right. That's the value, at, right? And that's what we know with hindsight, right? right that's right. the beauty of looking back on time. Like, oh, yeah, we know that that really was not a store of value, even though at that time they thought it was. Okay. What What's interesting, though, um, is as all of these futures contracts started to implode, we had problems because the people that were that had said, hey, I will pay you X amount of dollars for these tulips to take delivery of the tulips when they were ready in the spring or whatever time it was, they decided and said, hey, wait, uh, no. I'm not going to pay. Yeah, not like, anymore. Because they're not worth it. Yeah. Well, then they had this trickle down. Um, the court of Holland eventually suspended all outstanding contracts and said any contract prior to November 30, 1636 is going to be null and void. Okay. Yeah, so they just put an end to it. Which led to massive lawsuits and breach of contracts, all those different things. So in 1638, um, it's when they actually, Holland dedicated um, individual cities and made committees that were relegated to enforcing the payments of any new contracts. And the contracts actually changed from futures contracts to actually optional contracts where if the person decided they wanted to renege or change their mind, they just paid a three and a half percent fee and they could get out of it. That's how they started to protect themselves from paying uh, paying a price. And I started thinking about this and we did a show two, three weeks ago on how we'll, they'll always change the rules. Yeah. Right? yeah it was about yep. GameStop yep. and how Robinhood had, you know, said, oh, wait, we're not going to let you buy this and change the rules. And Piggly Wiggly, when they tried to corner the market, how they changed the rules. Well, back in 1638, yeah. they were still changing the rules. So I think something people should take away is if you think you've got a sure thing on paper, it may not be because they could change the rules on you. Yeah. And I would say the rules, at least as far as the tulip mania, to me, it when I was reading it, it seemed like good changes because they were operating as futures contracts, but there was a sentiment that they're optional anyway. And that proved out to be true because when the bubble unwound, people didn't want to honor the contracts. So it kind of seemed like, okay, these rules are put in place to protect people um, from this happening again. And, you know, then you pay, it's an optional contract. You can pay your three and a half percent penalty and get out of it. So it seemed like a good solution, but yeah, that's a great point. Cause that's, that is what we see with things like uh, the Robin hood trading and all that it's there, there was a pause and then some rules maybe changed or rules were enforced and who knows, there could be other rules coming down the pipe because of that. I don't know. I think that's a, that's, that's valid. I believe there will be more legislation coming down the pipe because of what hop, happened with the GameStop and the Robin hood. But another thing to think about as I, reflect on this is at that time i believe tools are almost being seen as another currency it, it, to replace guilders and we're seeing that today with cryptocurrency right yeah like people are. are starting to believe this is another currency well i'm not saying it's not i think the technology is valid 
I just don't know how big of a store value it really is. And, and that's the challenge with speculating on things, right? Yeah. So I, I think we should all be thinking about that. Well, at that time, this was the most, rev the Semper Augustus was like the most revolutionary thing they'd seen. They'd been able to breed a tulip yeah. that had stripes. Greatest flower they've ever seen. And I, I want to add, because we've seen, there are some companies, I know, I can't remember the company, but they sell Rolls Royce. And they accepted Bitcoin as payments for a Rolls Royce. So to me, that's similar to this situation, to Tulip Mania, because back at the height of Tulip Mania, you could buy a house with a tulip bulb and not just like not a normal house in an everyday middle class neighborhood. You could buy the nicest house on a canal in Amsterdam, the biggest city in the country with a tulip bulb. I mean, well, that just seems outrageous. In, in the book that we were referencing for some of this, Correct me, but didn't someone buy an inn? Like a family bought like an inn that they could have guests, and it was like two tulip bulbs, and it would like basically set up their whole family, their family's yeah. legacy forever, based yeah. upon these two tulip bulbs they traded for this small property. Right. I think in the like the total value is like twelve thousand guilders for the inn, and yeah, they they made out great on this deal. Yeah, it, it's. It's absolutely fascinating. So if, if people haven't researched this, they should check it out because it's actually really cool yeah. because I believe there are so many parallels today versus then. And I'm not saying we're we're in an asset bubble. I mean, we went back and looked at the, the price change of the stock market the last five years and nothing there says there's no 1000% return in 30 days like this, but there are asset classes that have had it. So we should be careful. And remember, who are the people that got burnt? in the tulip burst. It was the people, not the people who were in early. Right. It's the people who got in last. They said, hey, wait, this is my way to build massive wealth in a short period of time. Yeah, and I, that goes to one of our one of our core philosophies as a firm that we talk about making decisions with greed. I feel like we get in these asset bubbles and people start becoming greedy and making decisions with their greed. Well, who was it that commented on our post um, we, we won't say his name, but he said, hey, a boring investment is the right investment. And truthfully, yeah, it is. That's a good friend of mine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, truth be told, if you have a boring investment, that's probably the right one. If it's exciting, it's probably leaning more towards speculation than truly investing if you're that excited about it. Now, that said, if you're excited about something because you believe the future is great, that's wonderful to be excited. But if you're excited because the price is going up and down, every single day, that's not a boring investment. Yeah, and even um, Warren Buffett has a famous quote out there that your investment and in financial planning shouldn't be exciting. It, this stuff should be well thought out, long-term, yeah. boring. Maybe not as boring as I am, but it should it should, it should should tilt towards boring, right? I feel like you've spiced it up today, Elias. I'm trying. I'm, you're doing I, great. The, the people the people spoke, and I'm just taking it and trying to run with it now. So because you, you did a lot of research on this book, and so did I. We actually read the same book and referenced articles. We spent a lot of time on this. But tell me, are there any other kind of parallels? I've mentioned some of the parallels that I see today, but what do you see? Are there any other parallels that stood out in your mind as from your kind of standpoint? Is you're a little bit younger than I Maybe there's something else you saw that I didn't. Um, I guess some of the parallels I started thinking about, which, you know, I, I guess to understand at the time in Holland, it was a very prosperous time. And to, it's somewhat similar to what was going on in America pre-coronavirus. I think the one difference now that I've really been 
thinking about, and there's a lot of talk in the financial news about it. Well, so savings rates have increased. So it's kind of, we went from this really prosperous time to now nothing's open and there's all these shutdowns and we had large government stimulus and saving rates have increased. So people are pretty flush with cash right now. Um, and we have some theories about why Robinhood trading has had become popular and, you know, maybe even some theories about like Bitcoin trading becoming more popular. And some of it has to do with probably this people are flush with cash and there's nothing else to do. We're, we're still in this area of you can't go to a concert. You really can't go to your favorite restaurants. You can't go to the museum, um, can't go to sporting events. So to, I think the similarities are like people are flush right now and it's different that there's nothing to do because Holland wasn't going through that at the time. But those are some of the parallels I thought about and and was, um, you know, just kind of caught my attention. And another takeaway I, I took from that is most of the people that were actually hurt or damaged because of this tulip craze, it wasn't the commoner. Because the commoner right. couldn't even afford to get in the game, which is really, if you think about the stock market, you know, working people, they're in the stock market through their 401k. But to be able to go out and buy Bitcoins and these other things, it's a little bit more accessible today, but most people hopefully aren't going to lose their entire savings if they do that. The thing that's a little different, though, is the, the accessibility to trade and to use margin accounts has made it scary because you can take a very unsophisticated investor and let them use a margin account. There's the story on Robinhood about the the kid who ran up $700,000 in a margin account that he owed, and he actually, you know, met his own demise, which is really sad. So yeah, that's, that's a terrible. scary, that's terrible. Right. Back then that wasn't really happening. As we look through history, this was mostly, mostly wealthy people who are speculating on this. And right. yeah, some of them lost fortunes, right? But it wasn't like the vast majority of people were caught in these asset bubbles. I do think today though, these asset bubbles create buzz and they create news. We always talk about the media. They're gonna do whatever it takes to get you to watch. And, and I'll be honest, since there's been a change in the White House and a certain person's Twitter account's been shut down, like there's not as much news. I mean, right? I mean, we just don't have the flow of news. So I also feel like the media news are dramatizing some of the stuff that's happening to get you to tune in to watch. Like, hey, man, you got to check this out because we need you to watch our station tonight. So I was actually talking to my wife the other night and we, we were talking about just our habits of watching TV. And we had been in this habit for like the last year that every night we were watching like news channels at eight o'clock at night when we were getting ready for bed. It's like, oh, yeah, let's turn the news channel on. We haven't turned on a news channel in 30 days, except for like, you know, the five or six o'clock news, but watching the after hours news to find out what's going on, we're out of that. And, and it's twofold, right? It's, right? We have an election that's over. We also have coronavirus. It's not over, but it's not like it was a year ago. I mean, it was yeah. forefront a year ago. 2020 was a great year for news. It, probably the greatest of all. I mean, I, I don't know, but I'd have to guess between an election and in what a was pandemic? It had to have been the greatest ever year for news and cable networks that they probably will ever see or could have ever imagined. Yeah. So that brings up a question. So let me ask you this because we have so Tulip Mania that's kind of regarded as the first asset class bubble in finance history. And we've had other asset bubbles 
So we can look back at those and learn what happened and then hide in science 2020, we can digest it. So what are your thoughts on why do asset bubbles continue to happen then? Yeah, if we can learn lessons from the past. It's purely human nature. Humans are driven by the two greatest emotions, greed and fear. So let's go back to uh, the dot-com bubble. There was a point in time where any company that listed on the stock exchange that was dot-com was an internet company. It was just assumed they were going to be wildly successful. And that's really the asset bubble that led up to the the, the technology crisis. Yeah. Um, uh, in the early 2000s, I mean, we saw asset prices. Some of these were 70, 80%. Fast forward nine years, we have the housing crisis. That was purely fueled by greed, right? Well, yeah, the more loans right. the more loans I can write, the higher we can drive up the price of the house. And who wouldn't want a beautiful house? Everyone, think, everyone wants a nice house. I remember driving around town with my wife and we're looking at all, this is back in 2007. I I didn't predict anything, but I had the inkling something was going on. Kind of like in Tulip Mania, someone had an inkling someone was go something was going on, but they couldn't figure it out. Yeah, it started somewhere. I was driving yeah, yeah, around, yeah. and I'm like, there's all these homes that are, and we're in Iowa. I go, not this many people can afford $450,000 homes. How is this happening? Well, if you well, write it on the right kind of loan. Well, yeah, if you put yeah. it on a ninja loan, no income, no job application, right? Right. Amortize or, the payments over 30 years. Well, and, I remember yeah. countrywide that interest only payments. You literally could just buy a house interest only. People were refinancing, doing cash out refinances. And then you're only paying the interest back? Yeah. They had an interest only loan back in like 2008. So I remember because back then it's like, oh man, we went, we need to get, need to keep up with the friends. We need <laughs> a new house, right? What kind of loan can we get? I mean, it's just really exotic stuff. And so asset bubbles are really caused by greed because I needed a new house because I had to keep up with my buddy who had a new house and the bank needs to do another loan. So they'll kind of keep, they'll, write it. They'll, they'll push it to the limit that they can, which is human nature because anytime you put an individual who's in charge of writing that loan and they're compensated because of the loan that they're writing, well, I'm going to push as far as I can, right? right? I'm going to push it. And the banks, they want to push it as far as they can because they want to be as profitable and their realtor, they're going to push, push as far as they can until ultimately what happened with the housing bubble. Well, we just saw people that rates went up a little bit. People couldn't afford it when they took their five-year arm or three-year arm and the rate went up 2%. They couldn't afford the payment. I mean, right. the greatest movie of, and I know you've seen this, the greatest movie outlining this, this asset bubble is the big short. Yep. I mean, it, the way in which they walk somebody through what really happened, it's a phenomenal story. And it gives you an understanding of the behind the scenes, not in Wall Street speak, but just everyday normal speak, what was happening. Yeah, it's a good, I actually, it's funny that you say that because my mom actually asked me about the financial crisis. And I said, just watch the movie, The Big Short. I said, it does a really good job of being an entertaining movie, but also outlines how it actually happened. Yeah, I, so that's that's good that you said that. It's it, it's a great movie. If someone hasn't seen it, they should go watch it. It's the big short. So then fast forward to today, right? We really haven't seen in the last 10 years anything that we felt has really ramped up substantially. The last few months, though, we're seeing certain asset classes that may or may not be in a bubble. I, You know, we don't predict, but we're cautious, especially if things we're not sure about, 
things that are maybe a little bit more obscure and things that go up fast in price. Once again, what's it being fueled by? It's being fueled by, fueled by a lot of speculation, right? right. Oh, I don't want to miss out. It's agreed. I don't want to miss out. GameStop. What was that fueled by? I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out. I don't want right. to miss out. What's some of the cryptocurrency stuff? I don't want to miss out. I mean, I have people calling me that are friends saying, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know. It's up a thousand ish percent. What do you want to do? I mean, think about it. If it doubles in price from here, was it really worth the risk for the asset to double? It absolutely could go higher. I don't know. I'm just always nervous when things go at this rapid pace because things will end sometimes right. similar to what happened in Tulip Mania where all of a sudden, wait, I don't want to buy it and you don't want to buy it and Molly doesn't want to buy it and nobody wants to buy it. And what happens to the price? Coming down. It just goes down. Yeah. So I don't know. When, when we started to take a look at, you know, what was happening today, we always want to kind of go back to some type of history because I think it's fun to learn from that. Um, what else? Do you have anything else you want to add, Elias, before, before we wrap it up? I, I enjoyed doing the research on this, and I learned some new stuff, and I, I think you did too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I absolutely did. Actually, I have one other question that you just sure. brought up that I wanted to ask. And there's kind of – I feel like there's like this sense of, especially with what happened recently with Robin Hood, there's a sense of like, well, who's to blame for this? And I keep thinking, I don't think these situations are – like it's not one thing or one person to blame, even though it's like easy for the, you know, Wall Street wants to blame Main Street or whatever, your average consumer, the average guy wants to blame Wall Street. But to me, it seems like all these scenarios are a series of events. And it's just like, it's always a perfect storm of all these different things happening. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think you pinpoint one thing, but I think it comes back to one thing, profitability and money. It, it all starts there because while the GameStop, Reddit, Wall Street bets, you know, they say it was fueled by we want to stick it to the man. Well, they were concerned about the hedge funds being too profitable, right? right. It all comes back to money. And, right. and they're trying to be the equalizer and equalize the playing field. But as we talked about in a previous video, they're always going to win because all the trade, all, all the trading flow is being sent to one of the hedge funds. They're actually trying to shut down. So I think, you know, anytime we have asset bubbles, it's primarily driven by the fact that I don't want to miss out, right? Because what's going to happen, there will be some people who have got extremely wealthy from an asset bubble. Lots are going to lose. I have a friend who is in collectible cards, right? I told the story. He bought the Tom Brady for like 50000 the night before this, the Super yeah, Bowl. Yep. And then the next day, one sold for seventy-five thousand. Well, okay, what makes it worth seventy-five thousand? It's worth that today because it's what somebody's willing to pay. I remember right. growing up, I collected baseball cards. I get the Beckett card book. Tell me what my cards are worth like every single day. Oh, this one's worth eight dollars. Do you know what my card collection from the eighties and nineties is worth right now? Do you know what it's worth? I can't give it away. 
Seriously, you, kinda... you can't give it away. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I got all these cards. Like, I'll give you like six dollars for this 1977 George Brett. I'm not joking with you. I had some guy like, like me, he's like, I'll give you like six bucks. These things aren't worth anything. I was and, Dude, for six bucks, I'm keeping a but, George Brett card. I, I, they're all in my garage. I'm keeping them there. I don't care. I'll, it'll yeah. be my store of value. I mean, worst case scenario in 20 years, they're not worth a thing. I've got kindling, you know. But what what might happen? Think about this. If everybody is told they're not worth anything and they start to discard them. Guess what? Well, there could be another asset bubble in trading cards. You know, it's funny. <laughs> it comes back to what you said to me a few days ago. What, what was that? If you hang on to that flannel shirt long enough. That's right. <laughs> it's always going to come back in style. <laughs> That's right. Well, because I've been wearing plaid and flannel for a long time. So, yeah, I said, here's the good thing about it. I'm always going to be in style at some point. I'm going to have times where it's not cool, but then there's going to be times that it is cool. I think it looks good. So, well, I want to thank everybody for listening. If uh, you do us a favor, hit the like button. If you're not a subscriber, please subscribe. Um, it was a great show. Yeah, I, thank I had the, a lot of fun. I thank the Plaid Planner for coming back um, for another day. And Molly will go ahead and post the poll about my hair. This should be a good one. And then, I mean, if we decide to cut it, maybe we'll have the celebratory cut show. I can have you, I can have Millie come in here and do it. But um, you with, need a haircut. Yeah, that's what, that's what Brad says. So. <laughs> uh, with that said, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, you can get us at btwellshow.com. Have a great afternoon. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.